One of the most compelling events in my life has been the birth of my grandson, who was a year old last week. As was true for me at the birth of my son, his father, I was overwhelmed by the sense of how far beyond our control the birth of a child really is. How completely out of our hands, and yet, how completely about us the birth of a child or a grandchild is. We have such wonderful medical technology now. We have effective drugs and marvelous equipment, and we need that sometimes. But when it comes right down to the arrival, when it becomes clear to everyone that there is a new and radically alive person entering the universe from the womb, that is so deeply and completely from God that everything else seems irrelevant for a while. After the awe begins to wear away, it is also clear that this baby from God is also so personally and so remarkably part of his parents. I had the experience of looking at a picture of my grandson next to a picture of my son and not quite being able to tell the difference. And yet when I look at him in person, of course he also looks like his mother. It's not just the eyes or the finger, the way he tilts his head, it's the deep and unconscious sense of that he is body of my body. This child is bone of my children's bones as they are of their parents. And my son and my daughter-in-law pour their hopes and their dreams and their beliefs about life into that little boy. And when he looks at them, all the love in the universe is there. He knows that he belongs to them. All the generations of love and hard work and hope that form both of them now form him. And all of us, his grandparents, his great-grandparents, his aunts and uncles and cousins, all of us say to him, you will do great things. We know you will. You belong to us. The radical power of that belonging is at the heart of the story of Esther. The book of Esther is a story. It's a story, remember. Perhaps real, not sure, perhaps part of earlier Persian mythology, perhaps just a dream about being Jewish in the world, and particularly about being Jewish in a hostile world where Judaism is seen as other or alien. Esther lived and was queen during the reign of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, who was the grandson of Cyrus the Great. You remember Cyrus came to Babylon and said to the Jews, you may return to Jerusalem and rebuild your temple. This is his grandson, Ahasuerus, Xerxes. Many Jews had remained in Persia, though, because they had adapted to life there, and although they had made some serious compromises, they, they were living there. And the dilemma for those Jews was how to maintain identity, how to remember who they were as aliens dependent on the dominant culture, even when that dominant culture required of them to perform acts that were inimical to their beliefs. And so the crisis came when Esther's guardian and uncle Mordecai refused, as a good Jew, to prostrate himself before Haman, the chief minion of Ahasuerus. 
Mordecai had before this time been climbing the political ladder without sacrificing his Judaism, but this was too much. When Ahasuerus exiled Vashti, his first queen, Mordecai talked his niece into presenting herself to the court in the hopes that she might get closer to Ahasuerus and advocate for her people. A terrifically dangerous and difficult thing to do. She was successful, and she was chosen along with 400 other women for the court of Ahasuerus, but she became queen. Haman, meanwhile, a wilier and more decisive administrator than his employer, the king, paid Ahasuerus 10,000 silver pieces for permission to hang Mordecai and to exterminate the Jews in Persia, and Ahasuerus agreed. Because Esther in a terrible position. Esther gathered her courage and her salt, as Jesus would say, and confessed to her husband, the king, that she was a Jew, and that Mordecai and all of her community were in mortal danger now because of Haman's vicious, racist activities. Because this story is meant to talk about the power of fidelity against evil, of identity against immorality, it came about that the king, besotted with Esther, reversed his decision to hang Mordecai and hang Haman instead. This is a story, a story about the power of belief in one's membership in a meaningful community and the power of that belief to conquer adversity. The faithful alien, the marginalized but staunch Jew, can outface and overturn even the king of the known universe. One of the titles of the kings of Persia was king of the four corners of the world. This little adolescent queen outfaced the big king. That's the story. Because she believed in her community and its relationship to the divine. Without even using the name of God, the story seems to say that Esther's belief in herself as one of the only people of God allowed her to access the power of God. The author of the Gospel is concerned with the same issue, but without the romantic heroine. Early disciples of the church were not, at the time of Mark's Gospel, were not yet aligned with each other, and they were competing with stat, uh, for status with each other. Do you remember last week we talked about the disciples trying to decide who was highest in the pecking order, and today they're trying to decide who can perform exorcisms. What, who among us here, Jesus, can do what you do, they're asking. Who has the power to do what? Unlike the Jews in Persia, these people weren't safe and secure. Like Esther, they were weak and uncertain about who was with them and who was not. And Jesus didn't give them a very comforting answer. He says, not only are you to allow those other people casting out demons in my name to do so, but if you get in their way, you will be cast out of the family. The author of the Gospel uses that extreme metaphor, dismemberment, to tell the disciples how they should proceed. Better to dismember oneself than to let anything get in the way. Now, Jesus is not, not advocating self-mutilation. Jesus wouldn't do that. It's a metaphor. It means let nothing stand in your way. But I want to tell you and point out to you and have you think about the fact that the discussion was always about going and doing, not staying and thinking, about healing, casting out devils, feeding, forgiving. These are ways in which the disciples are to be faithful to their identity, 
to Jesus and to each other. Only in this way, in seeking peace, doing justice, giving comfort, can people be expected to be united with God through their mutual relationship with Jesus. So I think that these stories have a great relevance in our times. Like Esther and like the disciples, we live in a time of enormous empire with great inequalities and severe marginalization of great swaths of the population. Like Esther and like the disciples, we are now a smaller and smaller voice for justice. And it is so tempting, it is so tempting in the middle of empire to act like empire. We're tempted to launch big campaigns to pull out people to the church. We, we're, we have the impulse to reinvent ourselves in the image and likeness of the culture. And yet, and yet this church has not succumbed. This summer we did not succumb to empire when we remembered to feed the homeless. We remember our salt, as Jesus would say, on last Tuesdays at Mount Carmel. Or when we send our money and our prayers to the fire victims. Or when we pay the rent, the electricity, the grocery bill, the car repair, or the funerals that people come and ask us to pay for. Or when we pray our hearts out for each other. Because we do have everything it takes to return love for the empty promises of the empire. We only need to come again to this table to unite with the thousands and thousands of souls who have made us who we are. Today, we will baptize William Yelverton with joy and with pleasure. In baptism, we quite literally remember who we are. We will claim William. And although his parents and grandparents and godparents see in him, as I did in my grandson, the signs that he is theirs, we will give him this sign that he is ours and we are his as well. We will have salt with him, as Jesus says. Salt is used to seal a covenant, and salt is used to preserve and spice. We will salt William with our love and our promise that he will always belong to us. And we will say to him, God will do great things in you. We know that because we are part of him. This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley dot O-R-G. We wish you God's peace. We hope to greet you in person very soon.